this. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. There are many that go through it, but how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and how few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but uh, inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A tree, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, and neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce them, announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your lawbreakers. There's a famous piece of art that when I was little, my Sunday school teacher had on the wall at my dad's church in her Sunday school classroom. You, you've probably seen it. It's actually a rather famous piece of artwork. I'll put it up and we'll kind of explore it a little bit because I think it's really fascinating. Um, it's a piece of artwork from the 1860s, like 1866, 1867, uh, from an artist or a designer from Germany. She's actually not the one that painted it. She designed it, and then she had another guy paint it. Um, but it's called The Broad and the Narrow Way, and it's a reference to this particular passage. Uh, it's an artist's re-rendition of this passage. Actually, this is not the original version. Uh, she was from Germany. Her name's Charlotte Ryland. Um, and being from Germany, she, of course, did not have it written in English. She had it written in German. Of course, you probably wouldn't be able to. Some of you may. I don't know if you know German. I don't know German, so I couldn't pick up on the word. So I kind of went with the English edit of this painting to show you. But I'll never forget, my, my Sunday school teacher had this up in her classroom. And uh, just kind of having this image locked into my head. What I didn't realize this week is I was going to kind of pick on this image a little bit and kind of use it as a launching point. So I went to pull up some research on it. Um, and, and along with this picture, Charlotte, she also wrote this paper to go with it to kind of explain, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the symbolic meaning behind a lot of stuff. And this is one of those really famous pieces of artwork now, because what's happened with this art is that there's so much to it that as you begin to look at it, the more you look at it, the more details you find. And there are people that can like look at this for hours and still pick up some things. We, of course, don't have the time to do all of that. But I do want to point out some key parts because I think it's really interesting. There's way more than what I thought when I looked at it this week. Um, so if you zoom in to the very bottom, and I'll zoom in for you so you can see. The very bottom, you'll notice this picture of a snake and the Ten Commandments. And behind the snake is thorns and thistles and poisonous plants. And you get the Ten Commandments. And on the other side of the Ten Commandments is grapes and grain representing the wine and the bread. And it's supposed to be just a quick little telling of the fall of man in Genesis. God's attempt to restore man through giving them a law. But then really, truly restore man because man wasn't, we, a law doesn't save us. It just shows us our brokenness to be saved through the blood and the body sacrifice of Jesus. So this is just right at the bottom. She says it's the foundation of everything that flows out from it. So that's first and what she wanted within this picture. And then right up, if you go up just a little bit, you'll find these two gates. The, the narrow gate there on the right and then the wide gate on the left. And we'll talk about the narrow gate, but let me focus on the wide one for now. Because you might notice at this broad gate, 
There's actually two. Oh, go back. I'm not done just yet. Sorry, Kelsey. Thank you. There's a lot of pictures I have to get through. You notice on the top of this broad gate, there's two, uh, two people standing. On the right side is the Greek goddess Venus. Um, and, and that's to represent the pleasures of immorality and stuff. So right behind her, you'll see there's this woman that's kind of talking to this man from this little house. And that's supposed to be representative of kind of some scandal that's going on there. Then on the left side is the Greek goddess um, Bacchus, who is the Greek or the Greek god Bacchus, who's the Greek god of wine. So here's what she wrote about this. I just some of these things I find really funny. Some of these things I find right on the on the nose. This is one of those ones that I find kind of funny. But remember, it was 1866. So bear with her. Okay. the nature of Bacchus is shown by a company of men and women of all classes who in elegant public house garden enjoy the careless amusements of singing and cards and newspapers and eating and drinking. So how dare you sing and play cards, right? And eating and drinking and scolding and cursing in such measure that one of the guests has already fallen to the ground. So you can kind of see on the very far left, there's a guy that's like laying on the ground over there. But she she starts off with that. But then when you move up a little bit, it moves somewhat from that worldly fun idea of sin to the more hurtful and, and breaking sins that break humanity and hurt us. Um, so, so she says with this one, notwithstanding all earthly pleasures striven for and enjoyed, the yearning heart becomes even more desolate and more dissatisfied so that its constant pursuit is new distraction, whether to be attained by wealth, business or pleasure. So you'll notice there at the bottom left, there's a, there's a guy abusing his donkey. Um, that's intentionally drawn in. You'll see the two guys fighting, uh, the, these young kids that are pickpocketing this man. It's supposed to be representative of the sin that starts to break down society. That when we start off just trying to appease our own desires, the very next step is usually hurting other people for the sake of those own desires. Uh, and then what she says about this one, she says, with these sins might be classified that man torturing an animal, those pickpockets, those brawlers. And then she says this, and the rider on his way to sinful pleasure. I guess that's that guy on the horse right there. He's just riding off on his way to sinful pleasures. I don't, I don't think I would have picked up on that had she not said it. But be careful, you people riding horses on your way to sinful pleasures, I guess. And as you progress further up, uh, you, you'll find the next picture. You'll find men shooting at each other. And, and then the reality of war and death and slavery as these people are let off in chains. And all of this is representative of what sin brings to the world. And you may also notice a train. It's kind of funny. Here's, here's her quote about the train. Apparently, uh, Miss Charlotte hated trains. So as regards to the railway train represented in the picture, it may be said that the railway in itself is of good and useful invention, which further the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, all things considered, it's yet more furthering the kingdom of the Antichrist and is productive for much sin as Sabbath desecration. So uh, Miss Charlotte did not like choo-choo trains, apparently. (laughs) Even so, within this, you'll see right down here at the bottom right is a picture of the prodigal son. And she includes that intentionally and makes a point of that because if you'll go to the next picture, Kelsey, you'll actually see the prodigal son is then shown crossing a bridge back over to the narrow path. So she's trying to convey that even up this path of, of the broad, easy path, people can realize their own sin and cross over to the narrow path. And speaking of that narrow path, if we go back down to the bottom, you'll see the narrow gate. And then there behind the narrow gate is this cleansing fountain that's supposed to be representative of the cross of Jesus and how when you go through, you're cleansed of your sins and set on this path. And right past that on the right is a church that you might notice. 
um, that, that's giving out the communion, Jesus' sacrifice. And, and then following up this path, you'll find a different life of virtues. So you'll see pictures in the next one of this man that's feeding and uh, giving drink to the hungry that's there at the bottom. And then you have a guy in the white tent that's sheltering people and giving uh, hope to people that may not have shelter. If you go up to the top at the bottom of the building is, is a young woman who's supposed to be dressing people or clothing the poor. And then the schoolhouse is supposed to be representative of caring for orphans. And all of this, and there's, there's a lot more at play. Some, some of the things in the picture, I think, are doctrinally on the money. Some things are a little bit more questionable, like her pure hatred for trains. But none of that mattered to 12-year-old Philip. Because for 12-year-old Philip, what felt like every Sunday, I don't know if it was, but what felt like every Sunday, my teacher would point to this picture, this, this whole picture, let's, we'll put it back up, this whole picture on, on her wall, And she would say something along the lines of, we are all on a path that's either leading us to heaven or leading us to hell. Which path are you on? And what that did in my mind is it locked this passage into an exclusive hinge point on the concept or the destination of heaven or hell. Now, to her credit, there is a layer of that present within this passage, and it's really particularly present within Luke's version of this in Luke chapter 13, where he mentions that those who don't enter through the narrow way will be sent out to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So so it is there. But I think to lock this artwork, and more importantly, to lock Jesus's teaching to a final remark on heaven and hell misses the broader context of what's happening as Jesus closes out his sermon on the mound. And this is a thing I've harped on before, but I, I want to keep doing it because I want to try to push back against this mentality. We in the modern church have become so sometimes focused on eternity to come that we miss Jesus's literal implications for life right here and right now. So so while we can celebrate our hope in the resurrection and the life to come that's already been displayed in our Savior, do not forget the Bible is consistently teaching what we call an already but not yet lifestyle. Meaning, when we begin to read the Gospels and when we begin to read about the Bible, eternal life is not just something that comes at the end of the path. Eternal life is actually something that you are living in right here and right now. Particularly if you know Jesus over and over again in John's writings, he's going to say things like in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. I present tense right now give them eternal life. Or John 3, whoever believes in the Son has present tense, eternal life. Or John, 1 John 5, 11. This is the testimony God has given. John is reflecting back, writing this letter, and he's saying God has given us eternal life, and this life is his son. Eternal life is not something that just gets obtained later down the road. It's something to be lived in and experienced right here and right now. And Jesus just as much has that reality in mind as he does this reality of heaven and hell as he's closing his sermon on the mound. Meaning it both has eternal ramifications and practical present ramifications. And so to kind of push back a little bit, I want to spend most of our time today focusing on those present relevant ramifications on what it means to walk a path of life versus what it means to walk a path of death. So let's start off doing that in Matthew chapter 7. 
Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. And then how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, we often miss the reference that Jesus is making here to the Old Testament. And there is a very clear reference to what Jesus is making to the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that. But the hinge point on all of that is this concept of the word road, or, or the Greek word hadas. Uh, road is the most literal translation for it, uh, but it can also be imaginative. And we do the same thing in English, right? Uh, we'll, we'll say things like, uh, just, I just don't like this road you're headed down. That's not often your wife telling you that as you're driving the wrong direction, although sometimes it can be that. Usually someone says that when you're making life decisions that they aren't all that in support of. So road can mean a literal road, but it can also mean more of a metaphysical idea, a worldview, a way in which you live life, a rule of life. And the very same thing is true both in Greek and in Hebrew. So it can mean a literal road, but it can also be just this representative way in which you live your life. So my personal favorite translation is actually not road. Um, I think that's almost too literal. My favorite translation and the way most translations will do it is they'll use the word way. So enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad or the narrow way leads to life. And I like that word way because it's a little bit clearer of a connection back to the Old Testament. And to prove that to you, we got to do a little bit of Old Testament page turning. Now, if you're someone that likes the page turn, you can just go ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll catch up to you there. Uh, But I want to walk you through a theme that's starting all the way back in Genesis that connects us to Deuteronomy and then connects us all the way back right here to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's start off in Genesis as you make your way to Deuteronomy. In Genesis chapter 2, God places the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, into the garden. And they're in perfect unity, both with one another and with God. And God gives them these two simple rules. Well, really one simple rule. You can eat of any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. But the one rule is, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And as the story goes, God says, don't eat from that tree or you will die. And the serpent, representative of Satan, shows up and convinces Eve that God is a liar. He says, you won't die. God knows that you'll be like God. And there's so much going on. But I think the meaning behind all of this is humanity is given the choice between trusting God's provision and means for life and thereby living or following their own way and their own desire and thereby dying. And you know the story, they eat the fruit, everything goes belly up, but do they die that very moment? No, the story actually doesn't tell us that they die at that moment. Rather, there is this ongoing effect of death that settles in and comes to stay. There's enmity and strife and there's shame and there's vulnerability exposed. But of all of the consequences, the most major is found at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. Because the very last verse of Genesis 3, God says this. Now God drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way back to the tree of life. And from that moment on, the Bible is going to continue to present this idea of a way, a way being back to God and then a different way being apart from God And it's going to pick up on this theme over and over again. So Genesis chapter 6, before God's going to flood the world, Genesis 6 says that God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way. 
on earth. It's, it's the same Hebrew word. And then God goes and he calls out Abraham and, and that generation. And then Israel falls into the hands of slavery underneath Egypt. So then God raises up Moses and he calls Moses out and he saves the Israelites. And in Exodus 33, Moses is getting ready. He's leading the Israelites and he prays this prayer. If I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways. And I will know you that I might find favor with you over and over and over. The Old Testament is picking up on this theme of a way which leads to God. That's his ways. What he declares is right and a way which separates from God. But I think of all of these, this is most clearly seen in the book of Deuteronomy. So to hyper simplify things, and and I'm really hyper simplifying some things here. But to hypersimplify things, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse, or through chapter 29 is this little bit of narrative, but a lot of a long flowing kind of sermon that Moses is giving the Israelites before they're set to enter into the promised land. And all throughout this sermon, you'll find Moses saying things like, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 8, you shall keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. And this is over and over in these first 29 chapters. And then in chapter 30, Moses is going to give his final exhortation, his final call to make a decision. And here's what it sounds like. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, his statutes, his ordinances, so that you might live and multiply and the Lord your God may bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray and bow and worship to other gods and serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land that you are entering to possess across from the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. So for Moses, what does it mean to choose life, to choose blessing? Well, it means to follow the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord. What does it mean to choose death, to choose curse, to choose perishing, to choose destruction, to follow your own way? Choose which to follow. Do do you see the parallels between Deuteronomy 30 and the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7? That the final call is the exact same final call. Choose the way that you're going to walk. And there's clear descriptions for each. One way is broad and it's easy, but it leads to destruction, perishing. And the other way is narrow and it's hard, but it actually leads to life. And that picture comes up in the Bible over and over and over again. See, I don't think it's as much a picture of heaven and hell, although I do think that's there. But it's not as much a picture of heaven and hell as it is a picture of life and death. And in Jesus's mind, his way undeniably leads to true life. But it's also hard. 
You don't just happen upon it. You don't accidentally stumble onto his way. It's actually a conscious decision front loaded with discomfort and inconvenience. This is the reason behind Jesus giving the idea of the narrow gate. So to go back and quote Charlotte's paper that she wrote alongside her piece of artwork we looked at, she says this. The entrance is so narrow because we must leave behind the old wrong life and forsake all to win the one thing needed, Jesus Christ. See, see, the thing about a narrow gate, it's sure hard to get through there with everything you're carrying. In fact, it's not made to carry stuff through. If you're going to go through the narrow gate, likeliness is you're going to have to shed off and drop all the things you're carrying and leave it there to go and follow the narrow way. To enter the narrow gate will always cost you something. And more on that later, but, but moving on. So what does all of this have to do with verse 15? So be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. What's the deal with the two ways then following that with this idea of false prophets? Well, what I found is when something's pretty hard, you almost always need help from someone else to maintain the right trajectory. So this is, a, this is why I'm still not good at golf. Like, it doesn't matter how many more golf clubs I buy or how good my gear is. What I need is not better gear. What I need is someone who actually knows how to play golf to teach me to play golf. Like, that's, I need someone who knows the way. And I think Jesus is getting at that. Jesus is assuming that because his way is hard, you actually are going to need some help to navigate it. And so there's going to be people that make the claim to help you navigate this way. The, the Bible calls these people prophets. Now, we don't use the term prophets very much in modern day, uh, particularly outside of more charismatic traditions of Christianity. But, but understand the role of a prophet is still very much surrounding us. It, it is all around us. Because in, in the biblical sense, a prophet is someone who stands as a signpost on the way to God and they affirm movement towards God or they hear from God and they communicate God's truth to point people back towards God. But even beyond that, there are plenty of other prophets, so to speak, who, who stand along various different paths and they claim if you follow this way, it leads to human flourishing. If you buy this product, it leads to human flourishing. If you believe this belief, it leads to human flourishing. If you're true to this idea, it leads to human flourishing. The thing is, we just don't call them prophets anymore. We're far more likely to call them podcasters or corporate influencers or politicians or TED Talk givers. I don't know. Like those are the people that are standing and saying, this is how true life works. And Jesus seems to come in and say, hey, just because someone claims to know the way doesn't actually mean they know the way. You should be very careful about it. And to complicate matters even more, Jesus anticipates that some people will even claim to stand alongside his way and point to him. But in reality, point you elsewhere. He calls these people in the literal Greek pseudo prophets or false prophets. And if you're going to follow the way of Jesus, then there's this warning here to measure those you listen to and make sure they're pointing the right direction. So Jesus gives a litmus test. He says in verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And he goes on and he says a lot more. But for time's sake, 
Um, actually, really, I know I did this last week, and I'm doing it again, so I'm sorry if you don't like it, but I love Eugene Peterson's message version of this passage. I just think it's really fun. He says this, be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practice sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in some way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These deceased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. What's the litmus test? Well, it's not charisma. It's character. Look at their marriage, their family. Look at how they steward their money and their power. Are they willing to submit to authority of a church, even if the church community in itself is a little bit messy? Or are they a lone ranger? Do they embrace a heart of humility like Jesus? Or do they carry an arrogant ego as they go about them? No matter how good somebody can preach, no matter how smart they sound, no matter how many degrees they hold from wherever, if someone claims to point you towards the way of Jesus, but do not themselves embody the ways of Jesus and the character of Jesus, they aren't worth listening to. And I understand the thick irony of hearing someone stand from a pulpit and say that. So I would just invite you to hold me to that exact same standard, the way you would do with anyone and everyone else. It's not about charisma. It's about character. That's the litmus test Jesus gives. And he goes on in verse 21 and he says, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. Now, I really just want to focus here just a little bit and we'll start closing this whole thing down. But, but I want to focus here because you really need to make sure you're grounded into the text. I think sometimes people can read this text and we end up accidentally or intentionally making it more about uncertainty when it's really about awareness. And when I say uncertainty, what I mean is certainty or uncertainty about whether or not you're saved. Please understand this. The Bible never communicates a salvation of uncertainty. My sister-in-law works as a missionary in a place that I can't really say, but uh, she was meeting with this, this Muslim girl after Ramadan. She's asking her questions about what is Ramadan all about. And um, the, the girl essentially says more or less, it's about getting Allah, about getting God to like us, to getting enough points to go to heaven when we die. So my sister-in-law asked and said, so how do you know? How do you know if, if you've done enough? And this girl said, we, we can't. There's no way of knowing whether or not we've done enough good or enough. We can't know that. And I would just say the Bible never teaches that story of uncertainty. The Bible is never conveying this idea of, well, you better come to church and say, Lord, Lord, enough times and really cross your fingers and hope that God might actually approve. That's not what this passage is about. And so be careful whenever we come to this passage that, that we don't come off with some interpretation of, see, some of you in here, you should be worried about whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die. And of course, while having Christian language and coming to church cannot definitively determine whether or not you are saved, there are two things to remember. Number one, elsewhere, Jesus is all about certainty of salvation, that if you choose to lay your life down and follow him, then he chooses to hold you in his hand. And then the father's hand is in that and nothing snatches you away. You can read John 10 for that. And also remember the context here. 
That those who say, Lord, Lord, is not being pointed at a general population of people sitting there listening to Jesus. It's pointed back towards the false prophet. Because carry that sentence out in verse 21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Jesus is giving an awareness, a warning about false prophets. And he's saying there will be people that they will say the right things and they will sound really good. But they still will not point the right direction. Point being, there will be false prophets that sound very Jesus-y. But they won't connect you the right way. I like how uh, this is a guy, his name is Dr. Glenn Stacey, and He passed away in 2014, but he's an American theologian. He worked at Harvard for a while. He taught at Fuller Seminary, taught at Southern uh, Seminary. But he says this, all these teachings, and, and what he means is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, mean that we should be aware of those who claim to be Christian spokespersons, but whose words tell us to give our loyalty to the ruling powers. They deceive us. We are to be aware of those who claim to speak truth, but whose words try and persuade us to serve greed, violence, and ethnic division. Be aware of those who put before us a corporate brand or a national flag or a racial loyalty or the almighty dollar or an image of our nation that stands against the goodness or that stands for goodness against another nation's and stands against evil or for evil and inflames us to make war and arouse our passions to serve that image rather than to serve God who is revealed in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So the lingering question then is, well, how can we know? How can you know when someone sounds really, really good from the front stage and in our hyper technological world, there's a giant chasm between you and them and the public eye. So you can't really tell what their private character is. And we'll get there. But let me finish with how with this. It's how Jesus finishes. And it goes something along the lines of this. I'll take care of it. I think this is what Jesus is communicating at the end. Know that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Verse 23, but I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your lawbreakers. This is Jesus's way of saying you may not be able to pick up on every nuance of every self-proclaimed prophet or person that points you in the right way. But understand there is a day coming that I will take care of it. There is a day coming where Jesus will set the world to rights. A day where all of our secrets will be laid bare. There will be no more spin, no more image curation, no more filters, no more hush money, no more lawsuits, no more payouts or payoffs. Everything will be out and everything will be dealt with by the just judge and creator of the universe. And in the meantime, if you're feeling dazed and confused and covered in choice anxiety about who you should listen to and who you shouldn't listen to, what news you should watch and what news you shouldn't watch, just know these two things. Know the way you're on and know the Savior who has invited you to his way. Now, I know today might feel a little bit more like a Bible study than, than a sermon. But let me see if I can drive all of this home. If you were to just package this up and take it home, I think we would come home with something like this. Intentionally living like Jesus means following his way. That Jesus is the way and he has invited us to follow him. And that can mean so many different things for you. 
So I'm going to put this picture back up because I think it paints some interesting points. It kind of has a fatalistic outlook to it. But, but even Miss Charlotte, who painted it, knows that that's not the case. So to begin with, I would just say, where, wherever you are, if, if you could just plot yourself somewhere in this picture, wherever you are, Jesus has invited you to join his way. To surrender everything, to lay it all down and walk through the narrow gates. He is the only way back to Eden. The only way to restoration. The only way to experience the life God has designed for you right here, right now. And that abundant life will carry its trajectory into God's eternal kingdom. And even though we don't often talk about it, the very opposite is true for the other way. Because there's another way that will promise happiness. It will promise good feelings. And then in turn, it will give you heartache and pain. It will launch you into a downward spiral of brokenness and sin, experiencing the very opposite of what God has designed for you. And then that broken life will carry trajectory into eternal torment. And I would just say the invitation to you, wherever you would plot yourself, If you are on that Broadway, it is back open. There is a narrow gate right here that Jesus is saying, come through. There is a way to live life right here, right now and into eternity. And if that's you, you can come know that right here today. And maybe you've already made that decision. But maybe you've ventured off course a little bit. The one kind of problem I have with this picture is it doesn't really have a good way of portraying the reality we all deal with of veering off the ways and struggling with sin. But, but if that's you, just understand two things. Understand, number one, that if you've truly stepped down Jesus' way and you've been washed and forgiven, then your eternity is set. You are forgiven, set free. Heaven is in the books for you. That's amazing. You are saved and set free. But your sin will block you from enjoying and experiencing the life God has in store for you. It will walk you down a path of destruction and it will destroy your family, your career, everything you know and love. But understand this, you can always come back. That Jesus is opening the door and saying, come right back in. And finally, wherever you are, know this. If you are on the narrow way, you need help. I need help. Because the way is hard. What we need is help from one another. Far more than we need a new president or the same president or whatever it is. Far more than we need a new particular program. Far more than we need a dynamic preacher or a really good podcast to listen to. Far more than we need some prophet out there to point us in the right direction. We actually need one another because we're walking alongside one another on this narrow path. We need one another to stand as prophets and point to the right way and the right teachings of Jesus. And I, as your pastor, will do everything I can in that. But I promise you need more than just me. You need more than a 30-minute sermon on a Sunday morning. You need someone who will point you. So if you don't have someone in your life that will just point you down this hard path, might I encourage you to just find someone in this room and say, hey, can we get coffee this week? You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to have Greek and Hebrew in your brain to do this. All you need to do is sit down and say, I want to follow the way of Jesus and you do too. How do we do this together? 
and read the Bible together and talk about it. It doesn't have to be formal in a church building. It doesn't have to be a set of instructions or a pre-written Bible study. Just find someone and say, let's walk together and go. Because the way is hard, but it leads to life. And what if we become a church that shows that? Not that things are easy and we always got it figured out, but, but that here at First Baptist, you can actually find life. You can find value. You can find meaning. It's present because eternal life is not just a reality to come. It's a reality that is already here. And everyone's invited. So wherever you are, be it never being on this narrow path or veering off, you're invited to join. I'll be right here. I'd love to talk with you more about it if you would like to join up today. Talk with me after the service whenever. But this is your chance to walk the way Jesus has called us to walk. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your love. God, I pray that you would help us to know, to know for certain what it means to walk in your way. And God, I pray as we take those steps, even when it's hard, even when the Broadway seems to be more attractive, even when the world's telling us that it's easier and better to just do what we want, we would trust your way. And that, God, you would give us experiences of life to know and love you in incredible ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.